0: There are ways of creating an inner life that don't necessarily require the classical quintessential time space. And if you're able to have a creative life, period, it's part of your responsibility, I think, to just provide new models and templates and ways of opening that up for others.
1: I'm Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. Every other week, I talk with artists who are also mothers and caregivers about their postpartum creative process. You can find out more about the podcast at www.postpartumproduction.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Kay Lorraine Graham makes poems, texts, and sometimes performances. She's the author of The Rest is Censored and Terminal Humming, and a recent chaplet of new work from Belladonna. Her work appears in Flarf, an anthology of Flarf, Omniverse, and Postmodern Culture. Graham has taught at the Corcoran College of Art and Design, California State University, San Marcos, and the University of California, San Diego. She lives in Washington, D.C., you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at K Lorraine Graham. Lorraine's also a dear friend from when we were in grad school together at UC San Diego studying for our MFAs. In today's conversation, we talk about the process versus the production of art and the unfinished work of art and parenting, as well as what it means to be forever in postpartum. Mm-hmm. So, I am really excited to talk to you today because I have been following you a bit on social media. I've been intrigued to see how you've balanced your work as an artist and your transformation into motherhood and caregiving while also maintaining a creative identity. So, the whole point of this endeavor that I've started with this podcast is to talk to really wonderful, interesting people about that intersection. And specifically, I'd love to hear your journey like early on in postpartum and, and how that influenced you. And like, or also we'll talk a little bit throughout the podcast about how you define postpartum, how you define creativity, about who you are in those different identities and what you're working on, what your preoccupations are, how those have shifted, maybe how they haven't. Yeah, all of it. So I'm excited. Just dig in. So if we could start a little bit about how old your children are Your background as a poet, as a writer, and yeah, whatever is resonating with you today.
0: I'm so happy to be talking to you too. And it's always jarring to think about how long ago graduate school (laughs) was, you know, a little bit jarring. So I have two children. My youngest is going to turn two on March 24th. So she came into the world just as the pandemic was coming down. And then my oldest is turning five. In July. So I guess I birthed him in 2017, something like that. And yeah, I am a poet. You know, one thing UC San Diego did to a lot of us, and probably a lot of us were already going in this direction, maybe was help to sort of pick apart like our, our feelings about like the conventions and expectations of genre right? I still don't know anybody who like had the happy experience we did of like being thrown in workshops with like people who are writing in different genres and then sometimes visual artists too. Like I think that whole process still remains really formative to me in terms of how I approach making a text or a poem or or something visual. Like it's different. It's like, it's different to be a poet, to have people who identify as novelists reading your work, like the way they orient towards it. Anyway, all of it, whatever, we could talk about that. You know, and for years, I also made my way in the world as somebody who thought that she wasn't going to have children. And I don't know, like a couple things happened. And now I think of it as I think I was never like against having children or that I didn't want them. But I just couldn't really imagine a world in which it would seem feasible for me. I couldn't imagine the kind of partner I would have. Like I just literally couldn't imagine I couldn't imagine what my artistic practice would be. I couldn't imagine how I would have enough money to do it. Like I just literally couldn't imagine it. And so for me, it took moving back across the country to Washington, D.C., having a different kind of job and living situation, being with a different partner. And then I remember like when the thought popped into my head, like, oh, I can imagine parenting with Trevor. And I was like, whoa, that's not a thought (laughs) I've ever had before. And we got married, which also is something I thought I would never do. That I would never bother with, but yeah, it happened that I was just like I was thinking about babies a lot, and I thought I'd better talk to Trevor. Trevor is my husband about this because if I don't, it like it seems dishonest to not talk to him about it. Yeah, and so then there it all began, and then the idea that I would have a second child too. I was like, okay, I'm only gonna have one child, you know. <laughs> like, the idea that I would have a second. So it's very, I'm probably not gonna have another child. I'm probably done, you know.
1: So where did that shift? I mean, was it about feeling supported in a way that you didn't anticipate? So was it logistical or was there something else?
0: All of the above. It was about feeling supported in a way that I hadn't before. It was about being partnered with someone with whom I had just like a different kind of relationship. I mean, again, what was sort of, maybe it was also just about, like, I think Like I move in and out of like phases of depression. I think it also just had to do with like being less depressed. Like one of the things about like intense depression and anxiety is it's just very hard to imagine like the future with any clarity. So I think that that was part of it. Getting married is an act of intense optimism, I think. And so is having children, right? At least let's say in the world that I come from, you know, in another context, I would have just been married and had children and that would have been that. But for me, they were very like intentional, optimistic acts and sort of me trying to think about like being in the world
1: in a different way. When we met, I felt like one thing that always struck me about you is that I felt like you had a really solid identity as an artist and as a creative person. Like I always felt that about you. And so I'm curious just how that was in relationship with the idea or the optimism, as you put it, of children. And then also that's also really interesting to think about the overlay of depression and like depressive moments or episodes of time and space and like Mm -hmm. your body and how all of that plays a role because I know for you too that you think a lot about the body of the artist about the identity of the artist I mean you do a lot and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that work that you were doing before children and then after children and whether or not that's shifted and then we could dig into that early postpartum.
0: Yeah, no, and actually, thank you for that question, because that's funny. That's like a puzzle piece that we'll see if I can actually manage to connect it, but I think you're getting at something which is really important, which is that, like, it's true that, like, for me, being an artist and making art, you know, mostly making poems, but not always, it's been about making my way in the world in a very specific way. Like, nobody cares if you make art. Nobody wants you to make art. It's like, whether I make art or not is completely irrelevant. Like no one is invested in me making art. Like the only way that it will happen is if I'm extremely intentional about it. I mean, I think one reason part I became a poet is because, I mean, I fell in love with a poet and I met a bunch of poets that was like part of it. But also it's true, you know, (laughs) it's funny. I sometimes wonder like if I met like a filmmaker or, you know, like I'm very, I'm pliable in that kind of way. I think everyone's practice is maybe more interdisciplinary than they might think. But one thing about poetry that's great is like, you know, you don't need any equipment. You can do it anywhere. It's pretty inexpensive. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And so it turned out to be a kind of like ideal practice. And there's plenty of role models, even of women too, who were working and writing, but certainly plenty of men, like even beginning with the modernists, working And writing. So that was really important to me. Like, I needed a model of, like, how do you be an artist if, like, you're not independently wealthy? Or, like, how can I be an artist? Like, I don't know anybody I want to marry who's really wealthy. So, like, you know, like that was So, and I remember, you know, it's funny, like, somebody from my college days was really wooing me really hard and said, really bluntly, like, you know, if you were my wife, you would never have to work. And I remember, like, I paused because I was like, could, like, could I, like, could I do that? You know, like, could I just, you know, because I liked him, <laughs> so I remember thinking about that, like just spinning on that for a week and being like, "Oh my God, maybe she just like marry Doug and have children, and then I would like never have to work." You know, I would just <laughs> anyway. So yeah, so like a lot of my writing, like my first book I wrote on lunch break, you know, while I was working for. Like a think tank, like I was like studying US China Taiwan relations and writing about like missile defense systems. And so like that's, I, you know, I wrote my first book in my cubicle. And then, you know, what became my second book, which I workshopped in graduate school, I wrote that on the bus between Carlsbad, California and UC San Diego every morning. I've always like, I've known that if I'm going to make a poem or art, I have to do it when i can i have to make or find time or reorder my life so that the time works differently and you really have to push the limits of what you think are the requirements for writing you know like if i were a Husserl just sitting around being like i need a desk you know like i would never I need a desk and quiet, you know, and I need a wife to cook for me. And, you know, like I never, I didn't have any of that and I wasn't expecting it. So yeah, I think I even like wrote it down. There's like that Diane De Prima quote where she talks about like the requirements of, do I actually have it? Yeah. The requirements of our life is the form of our art.
1: Hmm. I feel like I need to write that down.
0: <laughs> I really recommend, and you know, she had many children, five, I think, Yeah. The requirements of our life is the form of our art. And that is, is really interesting, right? It's not R, and it's sort of like, she thinks of those like requirements as like this sort of like monolithic, unsorted bundle of demands. Mm -hmm. And for me, when she says the requirements, I think about like, Well, it's like if you're an artist, what's supposed to be in your foreground, what you're supposed to be attending to is the making of your art objects. Or if you're a poet, it's like the moon or whatever. Pay attention to the moon and birds and flowers and whatever. But actually, you know, she's saying that like all of those things that are in the background, those are actually what is shaping your artistic practice. And it's always true. You know, it's true for people who even don't think that's true, but she's like making it explicit.
1: Yeah, I love that because even when you're talking about your first two works and how you situated them in a place and time and a requirement, right? Like I made this work while I was in a cubicle on a lunch break. I made this work while I was on a bus between these two specific locations, right? They're not like these ethereal ideas out in the world that you sort of like plucked from. And that was like the creative impulse. that The creative impulse came from your body, Lorraine, sitting on the bus and yeah. having a specific experience on that bus or also the requirement of you having to take the bus to school at that moment. That's so interesting. So then do you feel like that has been then an existing part of your practice that is kind of in that sense worked in terms of how you transitioned to motherhood? Absolutely. I
0: mean, and I think too about like Bernadette Mayer, who's a writer that's really important to me, also somebody who had children and wrote while having children and like, and her children are, are there in the work frequently. Mm-hmm. And like her work's hard to categorize, but like some of it is in, in some ways, a certain kind of conceptualism, like in partly, that like she has all of these, like it, like if you Google it, you can find like her, you know, ideas for poems or ideas for journals. And one of them was just like, write about your commute. I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to, that's what I'll do. Bernadette Mayer told me to write about my commute. So that's what I'll do, <laughs> write about my commute, you know, like loosely speaking. But to the idea that you can make art anywhere, make a poem anywhere out of anything, regardless of who you are or what your circumstances are. Like, it's not that you don't have to attend to those circumstances, you do, but the idea that they're not worthy of like poetic or artistic attention, let's say, is definitely something that comes down to me, I think, from Bernadette Mayer and from other writers, you know, from the sort of the poetry world that I came up in. And yeah, it applies very well, I think, to trying to maintain an artistic practice during motherhood and parenting and in a postpartum context. It might have even prepared me a little bit mm-hmm. for it. But you know, one of the most helpful things somebody said to me in my early, my postpartum period first with Desmond, you know, the advice is like sleep when baby sleeps, but like I couldn't sleep at all. And newborns sleep in a deranged way. That doesn't make any sense. If you're a grown person, you know, at least for me, I don't know. It just, it didn't <laughs> it didn't work at all. Somebody told me like, just do whatever you want when you're sleeping. <laughs> You know, do whatever you want. And so for me in the beginning, that meant like, that meant like reading books in the middle of the night, like while Coco or not Coco, Desmond was nursing or when I couldn't go back to sleep or while Trevor was trying to soothe Desmond, but Desmond was not yet soothed, right? You just any kind of moment. So like the idea that you would like, clean space which was certainly not created for reading and art making but that you could like take it and inhabit it and use it in a different way and so like my memories of My early days with Desmond are like inevitably now tied to like Eileen Miles (laughs) like (laughs) short like (laughs) memoirs in this funny way. So I love that. It's like you know objects and spaces like it's hard to be a pedestrian on a highway, but you can be. (laughs) You can you can you can (laughs) like you can inhabit the space differently than it was designed. You can use things for things that they weren't designed. Then doing that, of course, changes them slowly as well. So.
1: Well, that's interesting though, because I hear in you, and this is something that's come up already in the few conversations that I've had for this podcast and something like I butt up against. You're not using the word should, but I'm hearing that like, there's this expectation of what is supposed to be happening in those moments when you're with your child. Correct. That's, I'm assuming externally imposed upon you. And you yeah. are reclam- you're saying I'm reclaiming that space. I'm pushing against that in some way as an artist. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, yeah, I'm just curious, like to hear a little bit about that as well, and how that has informed you, or like you said, is that because that's who you were coming into parenting?
0: I mean, I think it's both. One thing that's been hard and fascinating for me is seeing how the gender norms and sort of the norms of marriage and heteronormativity come down on you a lot harder, I think, once you get married and have children, which is maybe just a way of like saying that other people's expectations of you start to shift. They think of you in a different way because of who you are and who you've become. And so it's been interesting to see like, yeah, I mean, like just how much of that bullshit I've also internalized Mm -hmm. And have to like work against in a very, or just work with in a very kind way. So like, I think probably like a lot of my expectations about like how much I should contribute to the household, both financially and in terms of work, what's the work that matters Right. all of that is still, I think pretty fraught, you know, more fraught than like, maybe somebody might've guessed talking to me, like in our graduate school days, right. That I would have hangups about certain kinds of things. So that is there, but I do have practice sort of like poking against my own and other people's expectations, you know, you know, and one thing I love about an artistic practice or writing or anything, it's like, it doesn't matter if you believe it while you're doing it. I mean, actually it's like yoga. Like it doesn't really matter. Like you just have to touch your toes. Like, and if you touch your toes every day, like your hamstrings will extend. Like it really doesn't, it actually doesn't matter if you have a particular feeling about it or not. Like any kinds of feelings can help, but like, By sitting down, writing the poem, even if the poem sucks or reading a book, that's like actually more important than what is produced. So maybe this is a way of saying I have always been very practice oriented and process oriented. And perhaps that like, that has served me well, like as an artist and mother, because like I've always like struggled with the final object, like my struggles as a quote unquote professional artist. It's always with like, Getting the thing out into the world, I kind of feel like, okay, well, I made it, so like, please, like, can I just give this to someone else and like, you can send it out and edit it however you want, like, I don't care. (laughs) Or do you think this should be in a gallery as an exhibit? Great, fine, and I don't care. Mm -hmm. I made it. You (laughs) stage.
1: So. So then, how do you know when you're in that workspace or in that process mode? What is the completion? I mean, again, we're talking about time, right? And face and object and materiality. And so like how then do you navigate? I'm curious if you're saying in terms of what is done and how that relates to parenting, right? Because that's a ongoing I'm really like
0: this is an idea. It's like a feeling that I've had a long time again pre-parenting, but I'm really leaning into it now, which is that the idea of multiple versions of things and forms of things. So like I've always the two books that I've published, I remember just being like, well, I could organize this this way, or I could organize it that way, you know? And of course, when I read, I read things in different orders for the different context. So like the idea that a space or a publication venue, like the idea that that would sort of change, like how I would present the work, this just seems blindingly obvious to me, but I've never sort of had the guts to like push it forward and make it happen. So I think now I am working on a project that will be maybe like more intentionally like more annoying for somebody to publish or for or put out in the world you know or be less publishable in a normative way, so yeah, so it stops when there's a deadline and I'm supposed to give somebody to something, but that doesn't happen to me that often, you know, like occasionally I write reviews or occasionally like about someone's art show or something, or I do collaborative projects, and those are good, those keep me, but even so, I still just think of like whatever I hand off as like. It's just a piece of something in the moment. I mean, if anything, my problem is like that. I probably should edit and try and finish things more. That is the hard part. But I mean, it's done if somebody takes it from me and says it's done. Like, that's just it. that's my criteria. Like honestly, I mean, it's like I truly, I almost don't even care. Like, and then if I later go back, I sometimes read versions of poems from my first book in like different forms. <laughs> it's fine. Like I don't know. Wow. And it's true. But the thing is like, I am a poet, right? And so like the expectations that people have when they come to my work are very different. They're not expecting a story as much. And so, but yeah, you know, there's always a risk that a reader or a viewer isn't going to make the leap you want them to make, or they'll be bored with it. But I think I care like a little less and less about that, or I have just more faith in like the audience will appear. And the audience for my work is so small anyway, right? It's like, (laughs) so it doesn't, it just doesn't, doesn't matter as much. Yeah. And parenting is just this like endless open-ended creative project where you constantly have to reconsider everything all the Mm -hmm. time. So it's like endlessly generative, but unfinished. So the idea of like inhabiting uncertainty as a generative process, which again, like everything relates to parenting, but it's like, that's just what we do all the time. It's like, you really have to be like, okay, this is. I don't understand everything. I don't know how to do everything. This is really my day-to-day, like, and I can't pretend otherwise, while at the same time moving forward very deliberately and clearly and being the adult or mother in the space, making the decisions, often being a container for other people's emotions and feelings without taking them on yourself, hopefully, (laughs) even though we do, right? So that, you know, in juxtaposition, that's one of those things that like as a baby poet studying European and American avant-garde, you know, it's like, oh, juxtaposition, you put two strange things together and what happens? And so it, I think it's just like delightful to like encounter like a word from like my very early poetic training in a different kind of way, not unrelated, but different. So that's part of it. It's just interdisciplinary work. Like who is just doing the interdisciplinary work, like regardless.
1: Right. Yeah, I was thinking though about, I was thinking of you earlier today and it relates to what you're talking about in terms of the someone I'm going to just hand this off. So I was thinking I dropped my daughter off at school and she it was raining. So anyways, they didn't have their outdoor like recess time. So she was just supposed to go straight in and she was by herself. And she's this tiny. She's just really petite. And she's like walking off with confidence into the schoolyard. And first of all, just like that visual of like a small human that you've done all of this work on in terms of process, right? It's just like, all right, there you go. I'm just handing you off to this institution that is deciding now how you are going to exist within this role was hard. I also though, at the same time, had this distinct feeling and I thought of you specifically because I was thinking of how that saying of like when your children go off door, like a part of your heart, you know, like Mm -hmm. leaves your body or whatever. And I thought, I bet Lorraine would have an answer for me in terms of what specific part of my heart like my little heart is going with her, and I thought, what a cool project that could be! Of like how you break down the, <sighs> the heart, and like oh, okay, she's my iota. I just thought really artistically and visually. I, but I that. thought and I thought of you because I just thought that you would be playful and and yeah. thinking that being interesting. But anyway, I don't know how that relates specifically. I was thinking of the doneness of just like what you said about handing off, like that. There's even with children this handing off. There is right this responsibility. That you have to the work and to your child, and then it's ready to be out in the world. What does that look like? you know
0: and it's constantly shifting, and I think for me, it's never quite comfortable, so like the criteria for sending something out into the world can't be comfort, can't be like I feel good at least. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I rarely feel good. I think feeling okay would maybe be like a, like I feel okay. You know, like, How do you feel about sending your child to school during the pandemic? Do you right, feel good right. about it? And I'm like, no, like I don't feel good about anything. Like, <laughs> like what do you mean? <laughs> so there's that. So this idea that like we're supposed to be like comfortable and like feel like the solidity behind all of our decisions about parenting mm. or about you know a book or art going into the world. Like, no, for me, that can't be the criteria. It's too high.
1: In talking with Lorraine about sending work out in the world and about sending our kids into the world, it brought up a question I often struggle with as a mother and an artist, asking permission. As women and as artists, we're often conditioned to ask for permission and I know that I, for one, have felt this really poignant and powerful F.U. kind of feeling in motherhood and middle age, which happened to coincide for me as they do for Lorraine. It's liberating not to have to ask for permission anymore. And it's powerful that postpartum and motherhood often can do that for artists in that cracking open that our previous guest, Jackie Leonard, also mentioned. Yeah. One thing that also came up And that was this idea, and maybe this is my own preoccupation too, which I know we had talked a little bit about the work that I was doing and that I had shared with you, but about permission. And I feel like, I mean, honestly, that's something that early on in my engagement with your work, I was always impressed. I didn't feel like you were doing that, like that you were asking for permission in any sense in terms of the work that you were putting out. And I feel like that's something that I personally struggle with in terms of, can I do this? And I'm like, why am I asking? Who am I asking? Like, I should just do it, right? Like just do the thing that feels the most right in this particular format. And I guess that's a parenting thing too, right? I mean, there's that too. Right. It's
0: so hard. I mean, I think I still long for permission and validation. Like I really do long for it. I do want it, but I'm going to make a leap to parenting. And like, I think the parallel is not quite right, but it might get us somewhere. But Like the level of validation that our children need from us, it's like they probably always want more, right? And in the moments of seeing them need validation and support, inevitably it like conjures up my own longings for that. I feel like parenting is just like a constant reevaluation of my own childhood. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Right. And then if I ever get to be a grandparent, I'll probably just be reliving parenting, <laughs> you know, but there is something about that, like that push pull dynamic of like wanting permission and needing permission and support and love and validation. But at the same time, probably like never getting whatever you think might be the ideal, perfect amount, you know, like Coco, she always wants to nurse more. She mm-hmm. Never doesn't want to nurse. Mm-hmm. She always wants to cuddle more and that's totally, that's totally normal.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Like how do you live? I think about that a lot with my children. Like I want to just be nestled up in bed with them. And then I also want them to go away and give me space. It's like how exactly. Yeah.
0: And you want both. And in some ways they feel the same way too. And like, they want, you know, your daughter, she wants to walk off to class, like
1: on her own,
0: even though Desmond's, He's also a very performative individual. So he feels his emotions strongly, but then he really leans into them too. And they sometimes become this, this other thing. So he also wants to be a big boy going off to school while he wants to be dramatic and sad that he's leaving. me. Like he wants both simultaneously, right, you know, right. he wants to do it himself and he wants me to do it for him. Like right. at the same time, right. that is like what toddlers are.
1: Right. It's mm-hmm. like sitting in that that's not something that I feel like maybe that's capital. I don't know, like because it can't be defined uh-huh. in one distinct, applicable, productive, like statement, like format. So it therefore doesn't fit, right? Like I think an art uh-huh. does that and parenting does that, especially I do feel like the bodily experience of early motherhood does that. Like there's all different formats too, right? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I hear you. Okay. So my parting questions for you is if you could quickly, I mean, I'm not going to put a definitive, maybe a sentence, define for me, what is postpartum and what is creativity? Since that's the focus of this podcast.
0: I'm just like writing it down because it's like, even though it's a fairly straightforward question, it's obviously a very open-ended I mean, postpartum really is everything that comes after birthing a child. I mean, now I look at my mother and I think about her in a postpartum context, you know, which is not something I ever did. I remember moments with her, which are now inevitably reframed because I'm like, right, I am her child. She birthed me. (laughs) Like now I have a certain sense of what was going on. So postpartum is forever. It's forever, and there is something important about like centering the moment of birth. Like it's postpartum, so the partum part is like the referent point. and so it's interesting to think about that as opposed to I don't know, like what did I think about before, like death? Maybe I'm not even sure. You know, like what was my reference? point, what was I pre or post (laughs) before? So it's like, it's interesting to have a marker that is both me, but also about somebody else. It's not about jobs. It's not about how old I am. It's not about my own death. So that in itself is just really interesting.
1: Yeah. I never thought about that, that there's such a pre and post positionality for the person that's gone through that transition that doesn't, I'm trying to think of any other experience. I
0: mean, it's all of the big ones. It's like, I mean, I think it is other births and deaths, you know, maybe the deaths of your parents or someone close to you, you know, for some people, certain kinds of like marriages or unions, you know, but then on the other hand, it's also God, right? Like having sex for the first time, which is like also a narrative that one wants to push back on is like the importance of that. So, you know, it's intriguing because I feel like I can only ever have a kind of complicated relationship to it, right? It's like, I don't want my child to be the only defining like reference of my life. On the other hand, there is something empowering about centering that work and that relationship and that moment. It's not centering my job. It's not centering my poetry, right? And so it's a way of reframing. It's funny, like, and I'm staring this book Mary Kelly's post-postpartum document, right? Which is like one of the books that I sought out early, you know, speaking of like, just like models of like, how do you make art? Like, I saw part of this at like, at LACMA and the WAC show in something like women's conceptual art in, um I don't know, whatever that was sometime when I was going to LA a lot, you know, <laughs> in the early aughts, I don't know, <laughs> whatever it was. So, what happens when you take the reference seriously? It's like, okay, postpartum, I'm postpartum. I think I'm going to document it. Like, here it is. I don't know. So, that's not like a clear answer, but I
1: think then, that's exactly what we need. <laughs> it's your answer. That's all that matters.
0: And then, creativity, I don't know. I feel really mixed about the word creativity mm-hmm. or Me ambivalent too. about it. It's one of these words that I think has sort of been co-opted by a business and the tech world and the sciences. I love the sciences, you know, but like, we know at this point, like anybody can be creative. Mm-hmm. I maybe we're in a good place when that's something we can say, like anybody can be creative. You can be creative about anything. Creativity can emerge in any kind of a field as usual. Right. For me, it's not the creativity. That's the issue. It's like, who's getting to say what's creative and what isn't and what kind of creative endeavors matter and who gets to decide what matters and what doesn't. And of course, like that's the heart of being a writer or an artist or, you know, my entire artistic practice, like early on, we were talking about like the value or non-value, quote unquote, of mothering and parenting, the non-value of a poem, you know, no one pays for a poem. (laughs) like your draft of your poem isn't worth anything. It's literally worth nothing. You know, (laughs) it might be, if you're lucky, you can like give it to a library and they'll deal with like your archives when you're dead, you know, but like, it's different, it's different than visual art. It has no value. It's like, I almost don't care about creativity. If someone says they're creative, then I'm like, cool, great.
1: You know, but yeah, as you're talking, I was also thinking about one thing I think a lot about is just how much of a privilege the time to think and to talk all of this is and so that creativity itself becomes this sort of guarded space like just the gatekeeping like you were mentioning earlier but also the fact that creativity has to sit within certain spaces whether it's like MFA programs or certain art spaces or certain studios and oh there's a whole I have like a whole other line of thought in terms of how that where that access point exists and where it starts. And obviously it it has a huge lineage. And so I really struggle with that personally in terms of how I am creating and where I'm ultimately like resource hoarding in some sense, right? Like where the hoarding isn't always material, it isn't always economics, it isn't always financial, but it can be resource hoarding in terms of time and space and
0: time and space. No, and and it's cultural, right? Like both of us have family at different times who are available to us to help take care of our children. Right. I live in a house because my father-in-law gave us a down payment, like it's money, but that's like a kind of like access literally to capital and to home and time and space, like by proximity, you know, like I have a job that's flexible enough that I can like Take time off and still, so like all of these things, like absolutely, like these resources that we have access to that are cultural, that come to us from our families, from our race, from our socioeconomic context, all of it. Yeah. I mean, I think in saying that I, maybe all creativity is for me is a particular kind of practice. And so in that sense, I would want to like unlink it from spaces and particular lineages and context. Cause, and actually, I mean, cause I do really think that's true. It's like, it's like, how can I say this? It's like, everything is easier if you have money and resources, like absolutely everything is, but there are ways of carving out and making space even in the absence of that. And I think I'm increasingly interested in, is just trying to be really transparent about those resources that I have But it's tricky, right? You know, if someone... It's like, how much does somebody want to hear about, like, my access to down payments to buy houses in major urban areas, right? It can go sour really quickly, (laughs) right? But again, it's also part of, for me, like, what is it like to be transparent about this? Like, might that open up a space for somebody else? Here, I'll say something concrete. So I'm sure you've been at these panels, too, or just, like, in discussions, and people are like, how do you become a writer? Mm -hmm. How do you become an artist? And nobody ever says like, well it's really good if you have money or you... (laughs) (laughs) memory <laughs> somebody who does, or it's really good if your parents paid for your undergraduate education, so you don't mm-hmm. have debt, mm-hmm. um, or it's really good if you know how to work nine jobs and freelance, it's really good if you have a child and like, no, just like says that they're like, oh, you have to work hard on your practice. And it just like, it just drives me up the wall. Yeah. I would never have become a poet if I hadn't, Met a bunch of writers who were not independently wealthy, did not for the most part have stable academic jobs, but were all writing and publishing like that example of just how to live a life in that context. so something that I really absolutely needed. You know, and that's why I look at artists like Lorraine O'Grady. It's like, she's an African-American woman. She didn't start making art until her 40s. She actually had a background, like, I'm going to get this wrong, but I believe, like, she was, like, a foreign language analyst, like, possibly with the NSA or doing government work, right? Like, so it's it's why so I, I seek out these, like, stories and examples of people who are, or Diane DePrima, right, like, B generation woman having children because she wanted to have children, which like in her peer group would have been totally whacked, you know, like you want to have babies, aren't you going to ruin your writing career? And then she just had like, she didn't get married. She's just like, no, I just want a child. Like, so these models for like, how do you infuse creativity in this and a life of art in a world that's really not very interested in making that available to you?
1: Yeah, no, there's obviously a lot more to unpack, there, but I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate the initial, even act of like repulsion around the name, I think is really important. And I like to hear.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, creativity, it's like, oh, like creativity is what I have to do at work. You know, I have to make a creative marketing narrative.
1: Oh.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> though I don't want to harshen my job. It's actually really wonderful for the reasons I describe But you know, but like, that's the place it like right. brings me right. to. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, I never uh, feel creative. Like I just have to sit on the bus and write, you know, it's like, I don't know. Like if we have to wait around for creativity and inspiration, like what are we going to do? Except in moments when you're postpartum and you're lying in bed and you have like energy and a longing for connection,
1: you know, that is like a moment of. If you have a, I mean, depending on what your postpartum looks like, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So assume that it looks any certain way. I mean, I know what my experience was like and I know why it was like that.
0: Yeah, I don't know. If we were to go anywhere, which we don't have time to, it might be sort of like to this idea of like, I think there are ways of creating an inner life that don't necessarily require the sort of classical quintessential time space. Again, I'm all on about Harsarell and his writing desk, but like that is not the only model for creative inner life. And if you're able to sort of have a creative life period, it's part of your responsibility, I think, to just provide new models and templates and ways of opening that up for others.
1: Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's the work that is happening now, which is nice to see. Yeah. Yeah. And given that space or despite the fact that sometimes it feels like it often, it has to be fought for.
0: Yeah, we know like if we're fighting for it, like imagine... How else? Like, like that's what I just think all the time. I'm like, if it's this hard for me, it's so hard. I know they say that like becoming a mother often makes people more conservative. Like, I know that that's sort of like an anecdotal trend, but for me, I really do feel like it's different. It's made me feel like at least I have something in common with a much larger group of people like a sense of precarity that I didn't have before that sort of is helpful to experience, which maybe gives me a little bit more access and empathy and compassion to folks who, who are, you know, live much more precarious lives. So I don't know, you know, there is something about that. I like the use of that word
1: there. I appreciate that. Well, thank you, Lorraine. And um, thank you, Kayla. I'm so grateful for this work this time. It is work too. to it's it's work, working time. And I would say, despite of the interrupt, it's not the right word, but in relationship with those interruptions, I mean, I think that was perfect. So yeah, thanks for taking the time today and for talking in this format. And I'm hopeful that we can have other ways to connect outside of,
0: I know, me too. Yeah.
1: I love how Lorraine upends traditional, more patriarchal I suppose, views of what is art. What is art making and who's allowed to be an artist. Creating art while commuting and even viewing art as reading during postpartum, she challenges the notion that all art must be produced publicly or interacted with in an externally validated way to be considered art. Lorraine's discussion of unfinished art really got me thinking about how so much of the work we do as mother artists is unfinished. There's the obviously ever-unfinished work of parenting, and what of our artistic work? What is finished, and what isn't? Lorraine will continue to plumb these questions, and I'm excited to see what she explores in her poetic productions to come. You can find out more about Lorraine and where her poetic investigations are taking her through her Instagram page, at K. Lorraine Graham. I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. This will help us reach more listeners like you who are navigating the joys and pitfalls of artistic and parenting identities. For regular updates, visit our website, postpartumproduction.com follow us on Instagram at postpartum production podcast and subscribe to our podcast newsletter on Substack. Thank you for listening. And we are so grateful to have you with us on this journey. Postpartum may feel like forever, and sometimes it may feel very lonely, but you're not alone here.